Okay, the book of Numbers. We are glad to have you all in class. And the book of Numbers, well, when I first mentioned the book of Numbers, does anything pop to your mind? Seriously, I mean, not just not just with the title, but the book. What do you think about? Spies. Part of the Pentateuch or spy books. Okay, fits into a bigger picture of the Pentateuch, and uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. And you have individual stories, as Christy mentioned, like the spies from the land of Canaan. Uh, what else does comes to your mind? Anything? Census. Okay, the very title is tied to the census in chapter 1 and the census in chapter 26. And you notice I divide those up because it's easier for me to say census singular than plural. Uh, But uh, anyway, uh, you do find the actual Hebrew title for the book... The Hebrew title was In the Wilderness of. And often a Hebrew title comes from the first word of the Hebrew Bible or one of the first words. Uh, And one of the first words is this word in the wilderness of. It's not the first word in the Hebrew text. But it is one of the first words. And that was actually the Hebrew title for the book. It describes 40 years of Israel's experience, experiences in the wilderness. But our title for the book comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and the Latin translation. Now, uh, the uh, Greek uh, translation title of the book, the Septuagint, was, and, and, and I'm not getting the precise form right, but but I'm getting the basic word right. Arithmia, you recognize that kind of. So arithmetic numbers, and uh, that this deals with, and you get these as we stated. You get these from the points of census throughout the book. I don't give that as being the all-important issue, but but at the very start, that's something that helps us to get understand some expectations for the book. Now, David mentioned earlier that this is part of the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law, which is Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy. And let's just say a word about how this fits into this picture. Now, um, chronologically, do you realize, even if you don't take any gaps in the genealogy, that Genesis covers a longer time period than all the rest of the Bible combined? That's a pretty overwhelming thought. And it shows us everything that's in that book must be extremely significant because it is summarizing events that happen over a long period of time. And so Genesis covers a long time span. You get to Exodus 14, and or Exodus 12, I should say, with the Passover. 
And the Passover took place on what month and on what day of the month? First month. First month. Seventh or 14th? 14th. 14th day. First month, 14th day. Okay? Do you realize that everything that you encounter from here to Numbers 10, Numbers 10 around verses 10 and 11 takes place over 14 months. So there is a lot of revelation given in a short period of time. There are references to chronology throughout this, uh, but let's just mention a couple of them. A couple of them that are very significant for our purposes today. In Exodus 40 and verse 2, Exodus 40 verse 2, the tabernacle was finished on the first day, the first month um, of this this year, the second year. So they come out, it's the first day, the first month that the tabernacle is completed. And you read this in Exodus 40 verse 2 and Exodus 40 and verse 17. Now, when the book of Numbers open. What time period is it? In Numbers chapter 1, in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month, in the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So so approximately a month after this, the first day of the second month, you have this book of Numbers being revealed. Now, when you get to Numbers chapter 10, Numbers chapter 10, in verse 11, it came about in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, that the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of testimony. So the book opens on the first day of the second month. It ends... Or this section ends, Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. They all leave this area on uh, the second month and the 20th day. So the point, I mean, we're dealing in Numbers chapters 1 through 10 with revelations given over a very short, concentrated period of time. Then when we open up Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 1 and verse 3, the Bible talks about it being the 11th month. Let me make sure I've got that right. The 11th month of the 40th year. The 40th year on the first day of the 11th month. So Deuteronomy again deals with a short period of time. Deuteronomy deals with the last couple of months with the last couple of months before they enter the promised land. And what you have is in Numbers, the rest of Numbers, 
we're going to find a very brief picture, kind of an overview of what we can know about Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. I would say this, though. I would say, kind of like we said about Genesis, because it covers such a vast period of time, every story takes on an added importance and significance because... This is what God is revealing to us about that day and those people that's going to help us understand it. I would say the same is particularly true of Numbers chapters 11 through Numbers 21. That they are just a few stories of what we know from this 40 years in the wilderness, but it helps summarize and characterize what this people were like. What we need to know about God and what we need to know about them. Now, what questions do you have in regard to that? Anything? That is a very skimpy introduction. But but one that I hope can can help us to appreciate a little bit about where this book fits in to the whole. Numbers is a book like Chronicles. Um, First Chronicles, when you go to it, you've got to have a will to keep going on. I mean, the first, first, first book doesn't, first chapter doesn't rivet you and keep you on the edge of the seat with the story. Doesn't mean some of them won't. But at the same time, this is what God has shown us to, and He's shown to these people. Now, let's see what we can glean from Numbers 1. Isaiah, just read there the first three verses of Numbers 1. We're going to try to cover 1 and 2 today in class. But Isaiah, if you'll read those first three verses... The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take this census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by families' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. From twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who were able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. Okay, very good. The book opens, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. But the key, the Lord spoke, the Lord spoke, the reason we're taking numbers seriously, the parts that are exciting, the parts that are not as exciting to us, is because the Lord is speaking. And we are going to listen to what he has to say. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Now, this phrase, tent of meeting, it's used in verse 1. And sometimes that phrase is used interchangeably with the term tabernacle, another term that we're going to see used quite frequently in Numbers 1 and throughout the book. The idea of the tent of meeting is that God will meet with His people. 
God meets with His people here. That's the, in, the, the emphasis of that term from Exodus chapter 29, verses 42 and 43. The Lord meets with His people. The word tabernacle is a participle form of the word dwelling. The word to dwell or to abide, it is a participle form of that word. But both of these carry with it the idea of God living among the people and God meeting the people. And this puts an emphasis where so much of the Bible does on, I think, a couple of points. As the book of Numbers will. The book of Numbers will emphasize the holiness of God. Because God dwells or lives in the tabernacle because He abides here, because He meets with the people here. The people must take His presence with the utmost seriousness and reverence. And we'll see that when we get to the end. And yet, this God who is all holy, All holy, whose presence must be taken seriously, is a God who is merciful and compassionate and forgiving. When we read those, that section that sums up, sums up the 40 years in the wilderness. Christy mentioned the spies earlier in Numbers 13 and 14. You see a God who's long suffering. who is patient, who is putting up with the foolishness of His people. Matter of fact, that is one of the ways when um, Paul is preaching a sermon at Antioch of um, Pisidia in Acts 13. He says, God suffered their ways in the wilderness 40 years. And God, God has a lot to put up with in these rebellious and disobedient people. Now you understand, you understand that, 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 that we're just talking from the Old Testament that, that, that that's certainly not true of God's people today. <laughs> I, I appreciate when you catch the sarcasm without me even having to say that is a sarcastic joke. Okay. Um, but this is going to deal with a census. Now, if is there anyone here that, let's see, I don't see anyone that I have an unresolved issue with, which that will deal with in the sermon, but, but if, I, if I really didn't like anyone, I would have you to read verses 4 through 19. And we would punish you that way. Uh, but we're going to just try to sum this up. Now, we're going to find lists like this quite frequently in Numbers. And we're going to find it even in the second chapter. But here in Numbers 4, in Numbers 1, verses 4 through 16, you have uh, the 12 tribes and a leader selected from each tribe. And these leaders are going to direct in the census. Now, in a sense, you've got 24 main names here. 24 main names. You've got the names of the sons and the names of their fathers. 
And a lot of these names will begin or end with L. L. And L is a it is a word for God in and of itself. And it's also, in a sense, a shortened form of the name Elohim. And but usually when when a, when a father or son's name has this word El in it, his name in somehow indicates uh, something from God. For example, I'm looking at verse eight of Issachar Nethanel, Nethanel, the son of Zuar. Uh, that name would indicate gift of God. Okay? And do you know the word, do you recognize the word Shaddai? El Shaddai is another name for God. Okay, it is a name for God. And it's usually translated in English versions, Almighty. It's used 48 times in the Old Testament. And 31 of these times are in the book of Job. So, 31 times. But the point is, these names often contain some form of the name of God. And they're telling us something about God. It is interesting that here in this list, there is no... Shortened form. When you see a name in the Old Testament that ends I-A-H, for example, or it begins with a J-E-H or something like that, it is often a form of the Lord's name. It is a form of the name Yahweh or the Lord. And that's a, that's a shortened version. And none of the names contain that element. Now, if I didn't explain that well, please feel free to ask. Does the L part work if it's at the beginning? Or yes. Okay. yes. Okay. It can work at the beginning. It can work at the end. It's just like I was trying to illustrate here that there are four letters in this um, yod hey vav hey, and sometimes a word that begins J-H takes the beginning or I-H was considered the equivalent to the end of uh, that name. So yes, it can be either way. And uh, but what you think? What do we learn in a, a list like this? And, and, and I grant it. This this is um, not as exciting a portion. But again, it's God's word. But there are a couple of details I think that are significant. And I will go in ascending order uh, to, to build up to the most important. Look at verse twenty. Uh, excuse me, verse 10. Verse 10. Of the sons of Joseph of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud. Now, if I call those names out, you probably don't recognize anything right offhand, do you? You don't even think, I don't know these characters necessarily. But... First Chronicles 7 gives an extensive genealogy. I'm not going to write this on the board, but, but feel free to write this in your Bible, in your notes. First Chronicles 7, 27, 26 and 27. First Chronicles 7, 26 and 27. Amiahud, his son, 
Elishama, his son, Nun, his son, and Joshua, his son. So, you see that Joshua's family were leaders in the tribe of Ephraim long before he was born. And you hear, see here a picture of his family line. But there's even a more important note like that. And I want to write this down. And this is in 1-7. In 1-7, from the tribe of Judah, nation, the son of Amenadab. Does that name... Does that name strike a bell? Sarah, were you... Does and I'm thinking Perez and, and going back, but I can't remember. Okay, you're, you're making ties with the family of Judah. There, Genru four. four. Whose genealogy is given to end of Ruth four? David. David's genealogy is given. But but listen to this note. Now, now what tribe are they from? Judah. Okay. But listen to this note in Exodus six. Verse 23. Exodus 6.23 The Bible says Aaron married Elishaba, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nathan. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, Eliezer, and Ithamar. So, you have Aaron marries into this family. Now this family is mentioned again in Ruth 4, I believe it's verse 20 in that genealogy. They're also mentioned in Matthew 1, I believe it's verse 4, but it's verses 4 or 5, and Luke 3, verse 32. Now, what does all this mean? First of all, Matthew 1, Luke 3, you know whose genealogy this is. Whose genealogy is this? Jesus. Okay, this is Jesus' genealogy. Here you have a priest from the line of Levi intermarrying with a prominent woman from the family of Judah who is an ancestor of David, who is an ancestor of Jesus. But you see in Jesus the line of Judah and the line of Aaron intermingling to to foreshadow Jesus' role as both king and priest. Remember later in the Old Testament, later in the Old Testament, it says, you arise a priest forever after the order of, fill in the blank, Melchizedek. Melchizedek. In Melchizedek, you have one who was king of Salem and priest 
of the Most High God. And that's used as a model for the branch in Jeremiah 33, in Zechariah 6, who's going to combine the offices of priest and king. And so, right, even in a, in a midst of a list of the leaders of tribes, there is that important note. Do you think this is Melchizedek's family? Oh, no, I, I'm not trying to say that. Uh, I'm not trying to, to, you know, I'm just, I'm using Melchizedek for the purposes of combining priest and king. So, there's Philip just trying to, I should have made him read. I read the next difficult section. Okay. But, but okay. Now, I, I yes, go ahead. Um, you said the Elishama was what she was. He she was a daughter to nation in verse in 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 um, jo, in uh, Numbers one seven, and a sister. Excuse me, a daughter of Amenadab and a sister of nation. But that's in, okay, that did not, that was my mistake if I didn't make it clear. That did not tie to Joshua in 110. 110 is Joshua's family. 1-7 is the family that we're speaking of from Judah. 110 was Ephraim. 110 was the tribe of Ephraim. 1-7 is the family of Judah. Okay. So Joshua was from Ephraim. Joshua was from Ephraim, and we tied that with First Chronicles seven twenty six twenty seven to show us his family line. And jo- and Numbers one seven ties with 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 this family. Okay. I, I'm sorry I did not make that distinction. I'm, I might have shifted subjects too quickly without making a clear break and, and, and I apologize. Sometimes I know what I'm wanting to say and, um, and, and, and therefore it's hard for it's hard to follow. Did that help? I think so. Elishima was Joshua's grandfather. Okay. okay. Part of what's confusing, you know, Elishima is in Joshua's line. Yes. Aaron married Elishiba. Yeah. Yeah. So very similar okay. names in the that, that, that helped. Okay, yeah, that okay, that that, that distinction helps too. <laughs> Thank you. Were, were you saying something, Kevin? I was just gonna say, so Elishema would have been Joshua's grandfather. Is that the one in one ten? Yeah. Is it, uh, yes, yes, grandfather. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So even Israel. There you got your L too. Israel. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. The name. The name L. So everyone is sufficiently confused going in. <laughs> so what we have? Okay. One, four through sixteen. The twelve tribes and a leader selected from each tribe. In, in, in 1, verses 17 through 19, what we have here is Aaron and uh, Moses 
assemble the people. Moses and Aaron assemble the people. And so they're assembling the people. They're going to take this census. And then in verses 20 through 46, you have the census of the tribes. Now, this census of the tribes is presented in a pretty consistent way in the fact that it's that the, the language is the same. For pretty much the same. For example, in verse 20. Now, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go to war. Now, this same basic statement, this same basic statement is found in verse 20, in verse 22, verse 24. Sometimes it alters a little bit, 26, 28, 30, 32, 34, 36, 38, 40, 42, and 45. Same basic statement is found about this is this family uh, according to their registration and their fighting men were numbered from 20 years old and upward. 20 years is apparently uh, the age uh, for battle in Israel. And the overall number, when they're going to count up the number from the tribes, and they're going to have the overall number of 603,550. It's going to be the number of people from 20 years old and upward. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Who was the tribe in the midst of this census that is not numbered? Levi. Levi is not numbered and in verses 47 through 54 you have the tribe of Levi mentioned. Now, um, let's, let's read their responsibilities. Their responsibilities. I do think here we see a heavy emphasis on God's holiness on the seriousness with which one should take God. Um, Christy Arden, would you want to read 47 through 54? The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and they shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. The sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, 
and each man by his own standard, according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around. <coughs> Sorry, need to take breath. <laughs> the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus the sons of Israel did, according to all which the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Okay, very good. Now, you find a genealogy of the other tribes from 20 years old and over men who were able to go to war. The Levites are not registered in that group. Lord willing, we will see them Wednesday night in Numbers 3 and 4 and the role that they played and their genealogy. Their genealogy will be taken differently than that among the other tribes. What does this tell us about the Levites? What does it tell us? It tells us that God selected this particular tribe. He selected them to move the tabernacle from place to place, to camp around the tabernacle, and almost to be, and forgive me if this is not the right term, but if this isn't the right term, this is pretty close. Policemen to guard the tabernacle so that no unauthorized personnel comes near. Now, that may not sound very inviting in our day and time. I want us, when we come to worship, to always have a proper balance between joy and all. Celebration of God's presence, but an all for His holiness and His awesomeness. That this is not some flippant thing like going to a ball game. That this is something profound. That we are worshiping the God who created us. And at different points in my life, and I think all of us can appreciate this to some degree, I think that older people probably appreciate it more, that I've seen the pendulum, I think, swing too far you know, both ways at various times to that uh, understanding. You know, sometimes we, we, we were in awe of Him but didn't celebrate His presence. And sometimes we celebrate His presence but lose the sense of awe. And, and, and it's not an either-or matter. It's not an either-or matter. But, but this section, I think, highlights the, the serious role the Levites play. First of all, look at verse 51. The tabernacle is to set out. The Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. In verse 53, the Levite shall camp around the tabernacle of testimony that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. They are deflecting God's wrath when they are fulfilling their functions and keeping other tribes away from 
the tabernacle. The tabernacle is much like the mountain in Exodus 19. You remember the mountain that Israel was told, if you touch the mountain, you'll be stoned or you'll be shot through. Remember later when Israel carries the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan in Joshua 3 and 4, that they were to keep a distance between themselves and the Ark of the Covenant of about a hundred yards. In all of these passages, you see a holy God dwelling among the people. This holy God loves His people or He wouldn't be dwelling among them, but there's a need to take that holiness with utmost seriousness. Did you have a thought, Sarah? I, I did. I was... Could it... You describe them, I know this sounds weird, as like a human shield for God's holiness. Which I think it's a good God's way to describe it. God's holiness doesn't exactly need protecting in the same sense that, you know. Like, no, not protecting, but in a sense of, like there are demonstrations of that. There are demonstrations of God's holiness. The very fact they're camping around there and unauthorized people do not approach is a reminder to all, our God is a holy God and and must be approached with the utmost in reverence. So so yes, I think that's that's a really good term. And I'm gonna have to use that. I may or may not give you credit, Sarah. But but uh, (laughs) yes, Katrina. I just think it's interesting we see reminders of his reverence. or how important it is to revere him that he invites he invites the Israelites to all listen to him to jump up the mountain. They're like, uh, this is too much. Moses, you go do that. Yeah. And then Moses comes down, his face is shining so bright, they put him in a tent by himself. Yes. And then they up into the tabernacle and then it's like but remember, just because I'm in this tabernacle, that doesn't mean it's not as holy as the mountain and like you still gotta Yes. Go through the things to be able to be in his presence. In a very real way, the tabernacle is a preservation of the mountain experience. And uh, we want to talk about that more uh, some other time. But that's a very good observation. There's a statement that sums up what I've said in Psalm 2, verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Now think about that. Rejoice. We're trembling. Those two can simultaneously exist. We're rejoicing in His presence. At the same time, we're trembling, knowing that it was somebody, that it's this God who created us. And may God help us to never lose sight of that. Now, we're... Let's, let's take a brief view of Psalm 2, or Numbers 2. Numbers 2. Um... And I, this is going to be, especially when I'm trying to hurry now, very imperfect drawing, okay? Um, but here is the tabernacle in the midst of the camp. Okay. You have the tabernacle in the midst. And then you have the tribes... And this is what chapter 2 tells us. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. 
And then you go around the camp, and it is Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. This is how they are camped. Ephraim, Manasseh. No, that was... This was supposed to be here. Ephraim. We've already made a mistake. Manasseh. And Benjamin. What was that? Yes, that's right. That's right. As long as they knew where they were camping. Um, But this was... This was Reuben, Simeon, and Gad down here. And then that leaves us with Naphtali, Asher, and Dan. Now in each, it gives the leaders' names again. Numbers 2 gives the leaders' names again. And gives the tribe that was to lead in their in their section: Judah, Reuben, uh, Ephraim, and uh, in the last section, Dan. Now we're going to find when we get to Numbers three and four that the priests actually count closer to them. Uh, but this is a, the, the the tent is right in the middle of the camp. Now one of the things that shows us couple things that shows us. Um, first of all, we have Egyptian records of them traveling and the king, they would travel like this in a camp and they would travel with their king occasionally and the king camped right in the center. King camped in the center. Now, can you find a case like that in the nation of Israel's history? Is there a... Is there a Example of something like that, John. You say yes. I'm thinking of Saul when he's surrounded by his men. Remember, David sneaks into the camp of Saul in First Samuel 26, and and all of Saul's army is around him, and Saul is right in the middle of the camp, and David and his and Abishai take Saul's spear and Saul's water jug, but the king was in the center of the camp. So, what is this saying about God? He is the king. He is the one they listen to. He is the focal point of all of this. And and everything revolves around Him. That, that's one of the great messages that, that is right there. Um, I'm looking at a whole lot of things... That I need, um, that that uh, I have brushed over real quickly, but there's one thing I did want to go to today, and I want you to be aware of this when you encounter this in commentaries and stuff. Even though I'm going to tell you, I don't exactly know how to handle this myself. Um, if Israel's Israel's population before we said fighting men six hundred and three thousand five hundred empty. What would that total population be? Assuming an even distribution, one point two million okay. men, women. Okay. And then you can add on children. Children. 
So you're right, and, and, it's, and that's a good point. If we assume women are the same, but, but a lot of people come out with that. You know, we got around two million people here. Um, how is that? Are we to take these numbers literally, uh, figuratively? How are we to deal with this? Now, um, this is one thing that's fascinating. One point in Hebrew manuscripts that is most debated, that it's the most likely place you're going to find a discrepancy between various manuscripts is numbers. But do you know the numbers in all the Hebrew manuscripts and the ancient translations are the same here? They're all the same. There's no, there's no question here but the numbers as far as like what should have been preserved in the text. Now, this is... What does that mean? That, that what, is, what is that? Okay. There was discrepancies, but there wasn't discrepancies. That okay. Sorry. In the Hebrew manuscripts that survive, there, there's the science of what's called textual criticism. If there's a variation in the manuscripts, which reading do we follow? Sometimes it's done by just counting up the number of manuscripts. And sometimes it's very easy to recognize when mistakes were made. Numbers, for various reasons, are the hardest to transcribe from Hebrew to English or or, or to transcribe in Hebrew. And it's most easy to make mistakes. But, But here there's not a big numbers question. Now, but this is the problem. There is some evidence in the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy that this crowd traveling through the wilderness was massive. And there's some evidence that they weren't so massive. Now, let me tell you what I think underlies, and we'll get to that in just a moment. And if we don't get to it, think about it for Wednesday. But, but this is I think part of the point is God has made Israel a great nation. How many went down to Egypt with Joseph? Seventy. Seventy or seventy-five, if you follow, if we got a Septuagint reader among us. But but seventy. They come out a multitude. God has kept his promise to make them a great nation. Now, some evidence of the people being many. Remember when God says, I'm going to feed them with meat for a whole month. And Moses said, are you going to catch every fish in the sea? There's a multitude out there. There's a huge number of people. So that, that, that itself is evidence of many. And the question was asked in Psalm 78 verse 9, which is a historical psalm dealing with this incident. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? How is God going to feed all these people in the wilderness? But what are some evidences that there may not have been as many? Do you remember anything? Okay, listen to this statement from Exodus 23, verse... Exodus 23, verse 29. 
When God promises Israel He's going to give them the land of Canaan, He says, I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field may not become too numerous for you. I will drive them out little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. God says, I'm not going to give you the land all at once. I'm going to give it to you little by little because the wild beasts would overtake you. That statement is repeated in Deuteronomy 7. I believe it's in verse 22 and 23. Deuteronomy 7, 22 and 23. Now, do you remember, oh, if you do remember this, you're doing really well. I'm, I'm not expecting you to. How many firstborn were there later in Israel? How many firstborn were there? A few more than the number. The new form 22,273 and there were 22,000 Levites. So a few more. I want to, I want you to ask the question. If there are 603, this will be, this will be your math homework. We're dealing with numbers anyway. We're dealing with a book of numbers. So, if there were 603,550 males, 20 years old and upward, and 22,000 273 firstborn. What's the ratio between firstborn and overall population? Think about that. Just think about that. And 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 we want to try to deal with this a little bit. I, I will acknowledge this. I'm not sure what the answer is. I think it's best to take it as literal. But do I understand all the answers here? You know, do I, can I answer all the questions? No. Thank you for starting with us on this journey through the wilderness. Hopefully it will help us. God has recorded these things for our learning and our instruction. And may they help us in that regard. Thank you very much.